there's still a lot of drinks that I ain't drunk. Lots of pretty thoughts that I ain't thought. Oh yeah, Lord, there's still so many lonely girls in this best of all possible worlds. Welcome, Neil. I said you're welcome, Neil. This yes. is hell. I see. Alex, have you ever heard of the country music song called How Do I Kiss the Lips That Chewed My Ass All Night? No. <laughs> it's a David Allen Coe song, I'm no, guessing? No, it's a very old song, like from the 50s. It's something that I think that you should listen to because I think it has a message for each and every one of us. Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. As usual, Alex, Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? I was fine until someone mentioned a song titled, How Do I Kiss the Lips That Chewed My Ass All Night? <laughs> All I know is, I think it's Vince Gill's father, and I'm so glad that I have never heard of or could recognize a song by Vince Gill. I First of all, I want to thank Jeff G., who left a comment on our SoundCloud podcast for last Monday's show. I mentioned that me and my girlie are now grabbing random recipes we have never made before out of a hat, and then attempting to make that recipe each weekend. We'd Grabbed the recipe on Sunday night, and then the idea is it's the next Sunday's dinner. Last week, the uh, random recipe was slow-cooked barbecue pork, so Jeff G. left a comment with his recipe for pulled pork. And to be honest, it looks way better than the one that we made. Ours came out really, really good. Fantastic. But I... I like Jeff's idea of using three parts apple cider vinegar and one part apple juice instead of a dark soda. And his spice mix would have a completely different flavor profile from ours, and it looks really interesting because it includes stuff like cumin and mustard. So thanks, Jeff. The next time we make pulled pork, I will use your recipe. And if listeners want to see Jeff's recipe, you can find it in the comments section of last Monday's SoundCloud post of the show. The recipe we pulled out of the hat for next weekend is Alex cumin roasted salmon with cilantro sauce which sounds really intense and i'll tell you how that goes next week by the way we are taking next monday off as saturday is my birthday and i'm making a three-day weekend of it alex will have this week's question from hell for you our listeners after our guest the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new grand black this is hell trucker's cap you can check out the new grand black this is hell's trucker's cap and all our merch right now by going to this and clicking on support where you can see all the ways to contribute to completely listener supported this is hell on today's show egypt is taking from the poor and giving to the rich by funding massive and unnecessary projects with loans from foreign investors. 
including the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. The interest rates from those loans and repayment now dwarfs the amount of money the government actually spends on social services for the poor. All of it sounds very undemocratic, and that's because it is, and anyone who thinks the current government that took power through some kind of democratic process or is in any way a functioning democracy, you could not be more wrong about Egypt. We will find out what has gone wrong with Egypt since the fall of Mubarak when we speak with political analyst Mejed. Let me look at that again. Meged. Meged. Why do I have my clip right over my pronunciation key? <sighs> Meged Mandur, who wrote the Sada Journal column at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace website entitled Sisi's War on the Poor and The Capitalist Roots of Egyptian Authoritarianism, Demystifying a State, which was posted in his Chronicles of the Arab Revolt column for Open Democracy. You can find Meged's writing at carnegieendowment.org slash S-A-D-A and at opendemocracy.net. You can also follow Meged on Twitter at Meged Mandur. That's M-A-N-D-O-U-R. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is dark leafy greens. According to an article, food to eat and avoid when hungover at medicalnewstoday.com. Hmm, okay. Dark leafy greens are among some of the most nutritious foods available. They contain a variety of nutrients, amino acids, and minerals, and help the body recover from the effects of alcohol. Dark leafy greens also tend to be a good source of fiber. Fiber can help with some of the digestive issues, such as diarrhea or constipation that heavy drinking can cause. Adding spinach to an omelet is a quick and simple way to eat greens on the morning of a hangover, so that makes this week's hangover cure dark leafy greens. Diarrhea or constipation. God, drinking sounds so fantastic. Oh, that song is from 2004, Chuck. Is it? Yes. Are you kidding me? uh, No. Wow. But it did turn me on to, people also searched for a Loretta Lynn song called You're the Reason Our Kids Are Ugly, which maybe is a little bit more up my alley. Oh, Loretta Lynn's music is fantastic. Uh, Her song about the pill is just so incredibly enjoyable. Her autobiography is real good, too. Oh, she's really great. This is not the media. This is hell. And one thing you are definitely not hearing in the media is how the pandemic reveals the many fissures in our economy, in our politics, in our society. In our climate, in our world, even in ourselves, the pandemic revealing fissures is something that keeps coming up on our show to the point that the phrase is becoming a bit cliche. So I apologize for any overuse we have done here on This Is Hell, thus trivializing the idea of the pandemic revealing truths that have been simmering just beneath the surface for some time. You know, those things we normally ignored about ourselves when times were normal. Everything we denied about ourselves and were unwilling or afraid to admit Unfortunately, one of the fissures that has been opened and revealed to me has revealed something about myself that I I didn't realize and not come to terms with, was possibly unwilling to admit, maybe embarrassed or truly ashamed of, that suddenly, deep into pandemic, I finally recognized something about myself, the kind of self-realization that can be terrifying once it is impossible to deny any longer no matter how deep-seated that denial or reality is, the kind of understanding of oneself that can be Achieved through hallucinogens can apparently happen when you are living in quarantine under a virus. Who knew pandemics and psychedelics had so much in common? I know I didn't, but I plan on finding out exactly how much they do have in common this weekend when I am celebrating my birthday. And what this virus has made me, forced me to comprehend about myself is I am 
a loner, or at least have lonerist tendencies. And it kind of sucks. I know you're probably wondering how can you be a loner if you live with someone. By definition, you're not alone. But here's the thing. Uh, She's got loner tendencies too. And if you are a loner, I would strongly suggest you find another loner to be loners together because it kind of works. You get to do your stuff. They get to do theirs. Don't get me wrong. It's not like we don't do stuff together, but we also allow each other the space to be loners. But again, being a loner, it kind of sucks, especially when it has been forced back on me by a pandemic Right when my girlie and I were about to, for the first time in a long time, have the opportunity to no longer be loners and return to our more social lives. When I was a kid, I was in denial about my poor vision. And man, do you have to be good at denialism to be denying what is in view in front of your face at all times, or not in view from my perspective. So likely, I'm very good at denialism, which is another thing this stupid pandemic has revealed to me. Part of that denialism was my... Refusal to wear sunglasses, despite my intense solar sensitivity, making me almost completely blind in sunlight. My parents would buy me sunglasses, you know, the kind for kids with six shooters or stars on them that made the kid look freaking ridiculous. And I would go to my backyard and I'd just bury them. I would rather be completely blind than harassed by neighborhood kids for looking ridiculous. Unable to play in sunlight, only coming out at night like some sort of child vampire by my appearance especially my squinting in attempts to keep out sunlight, I was physically different from all the other kids. You may not know this, but if your physical appearance is different in any way, if your clothes are somehow unique to other kids, if you are doing something, anything, say reading, that other kids don't do, you stick out and are judged by other kids for your appearance or anything that makes you different. For kids, being different is not cool. Conformity is... And the more you conform, the more you are rewarded. Which meant as a kid, I was a bit of a loner, spending hour upon day upon week in my room, either watching TV or reading or playing some solitary game or maybe playing with my brother who is 14 months older than I am and uh, also a loner. While I would be elbow deep in, I don't know, baseball encyclopedia and enabling my OCD with memorization of statistics, my brother would be in the depths of model making airplanes ships whatever he became a master building models so i was raised with a person who much like my current partner kept to themselves uh, but didn't mind the company of someone else who also would keep to themselves but unlike other loners i did not choose to or prefer not to associate with others i don't get me wrong i wanted friends it's just that Who wants to be friends with people who judge you based on your disability, condescend to you, and act as if your disability is somehow communicable? But I was different, and being different is, like kryptonite to kids, will utterly destroy you, actually. When I finally fled East Detroit, moving away to go to college, I met people who did not judge you based on your appearance and did not view a disability as a disease. In fact, they were a little too fascinated by it, and grew. We- and I grew weary of explaining my disability over and over again. My social circle grew and grew to the point that 24-7, 365, I was socializing. I was rarely at my own place, whenever, wherever I happened to be living at the time. And wherever I lived was nothing more than a place to store my bed and clothes. All I would ever do at my quote-unquote home would be sleep and shower and change my clothes, spending the other 16 hours every day going from friend's home to friend's home, seeing my friends and making new ones, it got to the point that I no longer could walk down the street of the college town where I lived, East Lansing, Michigan, without running into people I knew or having them introduce me to even more people. So the next time I was stoned as hell and just wanted to go for a stroll, I couldn't without running into people who would force me to socialize. And that made tripping outdoors nearly impossible. 
A friend called it the desire of anonymity, the kind of an anonymity you cannot get in a small college town when the vast majority of people are right around your age and going through a similar experience that you all share to some degree, whether that is a graduate or an undergraduate degree. I, too, missed that anonymity, and it was one of the reasons I moved to Chicago, to have the freedom to walk down the street without everybody knowing your freaking name. Friends of mine had the same idea, and many moved to Chicago around the same time. They knew others who moved here, and suddenly I had a whole new circle of friends that were all somehow associated with somewhere or someone from Michigan. But now I could call on these friends to hang out when I wanted. They were not everywhere any time I stuck my foot outside my front door or knocking on my door before I could even get out. Those social circles found other social circles, and suddenly I was living in a neighborhood where many of my friends now lived, and it was like a small town again. At any time of the day or night, neighborly friends and friendly neighbors would drop by, pop in, and we hang out on our second floor front porch and socialize until the wee hours of the morning. Then I started doing the radio show, and I made more friends, again expanding my social circle, and to be honest, it was getting a little annoying. Sure, I loved all the people who I hung out with, I loved especially my new friends, but it was constant, and I was back in small-town America, unable to walk down the street without someone recognizing me and wondering why I was so inebriated. But the number of hours I had to put into the radio show every week was cutting into that socializing, despite introducing me to more and more incredible people. Right around then was when we moved out of the neighborhood, as all our friends were in an exodus caused by gentrification and skyrocketing rents. While most moved west toward Albany Park, we were the only ones who moved north to the far north side again me and my girlie were loners i was left to work on the show all week every week sacrificing our weekends for the radio show and further eliminating any socialization we could possibly do sure once a year we'd throw a huge holiday party when we would actually get to hang out with our friends but the rest of the time we were sequestered away to our own devices this year 2020 was going to be the year it all changed finally we would have a work-life balance that would fit the life work we wanted most, which was one that allowed us to focus on our work during the week and our friends on weekends for the first time in nearly 25 years. And we could not wait for the spring and it to be warm enough to have friends over or go visit their homes or hang out at Carrie's Lounge with them. That's when the virus hit and we were forced inside by ourselves alone, even if we are together with another loner. Sadly, I'm good at being a loner. I'm used to it. It's something that was forced upon me when I was younger, something I hated about myself, something I overcame then for whatever reason I desired it again. A constant struggle in trying to find that perfect equilibrium between being together and not. So yeah, it sucks being a loner, but if you are a loner, you've prepared yourself well for a global pandemic, which should remind us all that this is hell coming up egypt's war on the poor we will also have rotten history and tell you the rest of this week's guests as well as share with you this week's question from hell the winner of this week's question from hell gets the new gray on black this is hell truckers cap which you can see right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support live from late capitalism where the only thing that is privately owned is our own privacy this is hell egypt through its military is at war against the poor as the wealthy siphon off funds for social services to pay back foreign debts a massive unnecessary projects that are run by the military which is run like a business here to help us understand what's happening 
to Egypt's poor political analyst Meged Mandur wrote the Sada Journal column at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace website entitled Sisi's War on the Poor. He also posted in his Chronicles of the Arab Revolt column for Open Democracy, the capitalist roots of your Egyptian authoritarianism. You can find Meged's work at carnegieendowment.org slash SADA and at opendemocracy.net. You can also follow Meged on Twitter at Meged Mandur. Welcome to This Is How, Meged. Thank you very much. It's, Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for being on our show. This is a fantastic topic, and you know, let me t- let's just start with this real quick. Why do you think it is that the Western media, especially here in the United States, but why do you think it is here in the West uh, with the Western media that since Mubarak has left, since they got rid of the Muslim Brotherhood, since Sisi has taken power, there really isn't any news in the U.S. media cycle about Egypt. To you, what explains that complete, the seemingly lack of interest in what's happening in Egypt? Uh, well, that makes uh, total sense, actually, because the military now is in uh, power, and the military, um, let's say, is a uh, um, uh, is considered to be a, a strategic uh, ally of the U.S. Um, I think it believe, um, I think it receives around 1.3 billion a year in in um, uh, military uh, American aid. Um, so it really does make sense that there is not a lot of, 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 of uh, coverage. Plus, there is this idea that it's not sensational uh, anymore. So now you have a dictatorship and there is kind of slow decay uh, setting in. So from the media uh, perspective, uh, it's not as sensational as uh, other stories uh, compared to Syria, um, uh, uh, for example. Um, also, I think there is, uh, since um, uh, Trump um, uh, came to power, I would say the media has been more focused on him uh, than on, uh, than on uh, anything else. Well, just as an example, real quick, I'm just curious about this, and this was not in my notes whatsoever. It's just something I was thinking of. Uh, so why do you think the Western media, why do you think the U.S. media is so enthralled with what's happening in Belarus, but is not in any way interested in what's happening within Egypt? What does that tell you about the way that U.S. media uh, covers their ally, U.S. allies and covers those that may not be U.S. allies? Well, um, I think the way is very clear, um, right? So if, if you're uh, an ally of the U.S., then you're treated very differently than if you're not. For example, if I compare Egypt and, uh, and um, uh, Iran, uh, for example, I would say Egypt's human rights record is way worse. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, of course, it's not... Um, uh, good in uh, Iran either, but Egypt is a clear European and American ally, so the coverage is very limited, um, and there is no pressure in terms of the media uh, on uh, what's happening there, even though um, the level of repression is uh, extremely high, and the human rights record is, is uh, abysmal. Um, and the country is, is really uh, going down a way that it will be very difficult to, um, let's say, um, recover from. That's a fascinating idea. Of, uh, the idea of like uh, propaganda by omission is really 
fascinating. You write in your article, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace website, you write that in May 2020, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development predicted growth of the Egyptian economy would slow down severely, reaching a mere 0.5% for 2020 compared to 5.6% in 2019. This economic slowdown is preceded by sustained increases in poverty rates, heightening Egyptians' social vulnerability. How much more vulnerable has the pandemic made the people in Egypt? How much is this economic downturn a result of the pandemic, and how much is it a result of other factors? Um, so the economic um, downturn from the macro level has been uh, so so the pandemic has really hit the country very hard uh, because this is um, a country that is basically relying on uh, a few basic sources of uh, income, um, basically tourism, uh, which has been heavily uh, affected. Um, also, uh, the the um, uh, income from uh, Egyptians living uh, uh, abroad, and this was also heavily um, uh, affected. Um, also, uh, the uh, income from the Suez Canal, uh, which with with uh, the slowdown in uh, um, uh, global uh, trade, also will be heavily uh, affected. Um, also, uh, yeah, the country relies heavily on the uh, export of uh, crude uh, oil, and uh, the price of oil has uh, also decreased uh, significantly. So, um, uh, all of that will uh, have an impact at the micro level in terms of the poverty rates. This is the result of a systematic uh, policy that has been going on for years. Um, so it's not something new that the pandemic will lead to. Uh, the figures that I uh, referred to in the uh, article are pre-pandemic. Uh, um, uh, so the poverty rate increases are not because of the pandemic. It is completely man-made. You describe Egypt's fiscal and economic policy as designed to accelerate the transfer of wealth from the lower and middle classes to the business elites. That's the main culprit of the downturn of the economy, designed to redistribute wealth upward. Is the public fully aware that the economy is designed to uh, make a few rich and many poor? Is this a popular program that has the public support, or is this something that's being impo- imposed on the people in an undemocratic fashion? Uh, well, definitely everything in Egypt is being uh, kind of uh, imposed. So the idea of Popular support, unfortunately, is very hard to gauge in a, a dictatorship. Um, however, I don't believe that there is a, a very clear awareness that the entire policy is basically uh, designed to siphon off wealth from the poor to um, uh, the rich. I don't see that as people are acutely aware of it. They are aware that the government is uh, severely cutting social uh, spending. They can see it, they can sense it. Uh, but at the same time, they're not able to see the complexities of um, uh, taxation, fiscal policy, all of the, the loans. Uh, so I would say it's rather difficult for them to understand that they're basically being bled dry uh, by the government. Um, so I don't think there is a popular awareness of that. There is a sense that this is happening because they can feel it, of course. Uh, people are getting uh, poorer. Inflation is 
skyrocketing. So you can tell um, that they're struggling, but they're not aware that this is the result of um, deliberate policy by design. Um, there is always this, let's say, uh, optimism that next year is going to get better. Next year it will get better. Uh, the government also is uh, being uh, involved in very heavy, uh, uh, let's say, uh, propaganda uh, uh, campaigns that give the illusion that the country is moving forward. Um, so they are involved in those mega infrastructure uh, projects. Um, which actually have very, let's say, unsure, dubious uh, economic uh, benefits. Um, but but um, there, is, uh, there is no free media in the country, so it's very hard for people to see uh, and, to, uh, and to, let's say, uh, understand that those projects are not leading to actual benefit and uh, increases in the quality of their lives. I want to get to what some of those projects are, just if you could give us uh, examples in just a moment. But you you write that the government relies heavily on loans in lieu of taxation to finance government operations and mega infrastructure projects. Tax revenues are instead disproportionately used for loan and interest payments. This leads to a transfer of wealth from the lower and middle classes to the regime's creditors, both foreign and domestic. If these projects need to be financed by taxation or loans, and the government has chosen to pursue loans... Is that because any increase in taxes would not be tolerated by the public? Is this a way in which the uh, CC government can politically expedite this kind of spending without having to go through the motions of raising taxes and maybe leading to more unpopularity amongst the public? Um, well, I think it's a bit more complicated than that. So, yes, that's a part of it, is that raising taxes can lead to, let's say, uh, popular uh, anger. However, if you're raising the taxes on the rich, no, this will not lead to uh, popular uh, anger. Um, the basic idea here is that the uh, military is uh, expanding aggressively into the uh, economy. And they don't pay taxation at all. Uh, so any uh, profits that they uh, collect, they mostly pay little to no uh, uh, taxation. Uh, so the system is basically designed in a way where the government would would continuously borrow and use the taxation from the poor and from the middle class to pay back those loans plus uh, uh, interests, which will effectively mean that the poor and the middle class continue to finance uh, the the, the uh, projects. However, um, they don't have a say in, in, in uh, government. Uh, so it's rather simple. If you have um, a government that's not relying on uh, taxation, then it's very hard for you to pressure that uh, uh, government. Um, so the system is a bit more complex than a simple uh, thing of raising the taxes will lead to um, uh, to uh, popular um, uh, uh, anger. And they are raising the taxes, but not the progressive taxation format. So, uh, for example, in 2016, they, um, uh, they uh, let's say, uh, imposed a new VAT uh, tax of around 16%. And that's by nature regressive because it's not really taking into consideration 
the income of the people that will have to pay um, um, the tax. So they are raising the taxes in a regressive form, which means they are basically exempting the rich from, from, uh, from um, having to pay. And just for folks here in the United States who may not be familiar with the phrase, VAT means uh, value-added tax. Here in the States, we call that a sales tax. Is that sales tax sold to the Egyptian people as being fair? Because often here in the United States, they uh, always uh, package sales tax as being fair because it affects everybody in that exact same way. Do they try to sell this through propaganda as being fair, even though clearly on its face, uh, VAT is uh, regressive? Yeah, um, so the dictatorship in Asia doesn't really try to sell much. <laughs> uh, there is an excessive use of force and, let's say, um, top-down uh, uh, orders. So the propaganda being used is that this is part of an economic reform that will bear fruit in the future. So we will just have to suffer now for one or two or three years, and then eventually things will get better. Um, of course, this hasn't happened, uh, and this has been going on basically since 2013, uh, since, uh, since, uh, since uh, the military came um, uh, to power. Um, so the idea of, of fairness is not really discussed very clearly. It's more that it's a painful medicine that you have to go through in order for things to get better. And of course, what makes this even more um, believable for the people is that the uh, IMF is continuously praising the country for its adherence to uh, to its, um, let's say, um, economic uh, reform uh, program. And we, I want to talk about uh, who benefits from this in just a moment. And IMF and World Bank are certainly those who are amongst those who benefit from it. But is the economy, is the Egyptian economy and the Egyptian public, are they dependent upon these mega projects that are making Egypt more and more in debt to creditors, both domestic and foreign? Is this in any way akin to what many saw as a grand bargain between the Mubarak government and the people? Uh, no, uh, absolutely not. Uh, I would say that those mega uh, projects are mostly a vehicle for the military to be able to expand into the uh, into the uh, economy, uh, increase their uh, patronage networks. Um, they're basically using the state and the uh, and uh, the existing legal frame um, uh, frameworks in a way that that basically allows them to appropriate public funds for their own private gain. Um, so it's very useful in terms of, of uh, propaganda, but in reality, the benefits to the people uh, is extremely limited. Of course, there are some improvements. For example, there has been massive investment in uh, the road uh, uh, infrastructure, which is a good thing. However, this is done mostly by, by um, uh, the military without open bidding. So they just get the contract and they do it, which is, of course, opening the road for uh, immense corruption, um, graft, uh, uh, you name it. Um, so the way that things are done um, leads, uh, in essence, to um, the military's business uh, enterprises benefiting 
growing also at the expense of the civilian uh, private sector. To what extent then does the Egyptian government, to what extent do they buy the support of the military to impose their economic policies that take money from everyone and give it only to the wealthiest while eliminating a safety net and making poverty worse than it already is. Is the government buying military support or is that the wrong way to look at this? Mm, I think it's the other way around. So basically the military is controlling the state. Uh, so the military is heavily penetrating uh, the state and the executive branch. Over the past years, the lines between the uh, between the uh, judiciary, uh, the uh, executive, uh, and the legislative uh, have blurred completely. Uh, the security apparatus, for example, um, vets and controls uh, elections. Um, in the local, uh, let's say, uh, administrations, the military is there. Uh, ex-military uh, officers are uh, in control. Um, so it's not that the government is buying the support of the military. The government is the military. You also write that this heavy reliance on borrowing combined with a regressive taxation system means that the taxpayer is obliged to repay these loans plus their interest. The average taxpayer effectively acts as a vehicle for wealth transfer to the upper classes who can afford to lend to the government and to international creditors. These creditors include international organizations like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, regional allies, as well as the international market. Egypt's economic downturn may be horrible for the majority of the Egyptian people, but how bad is it for the bottom line of institutions like the IMF and World Bank? Or I should say, how good is it to their bottom line? Um, Well, the uh, IMF has traditionally played a very bad role in this. Uh, So this neoliberal uh, agenda, even from the Mubarak years, was one of the drivers for the uh, Arab um, uh, Spring. Uh, so the way that that um, this is managed, let me be very clear. If you look at the GDP growth, then uh, the there is an argument to be made that the country actually is 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 uh, growing. But if you look at how the people are living and the and the sustainability of that and the poverty rate and the quality of life, this is all going down across um, uh, across uh, the, the, the uh, sectors. Um, so it's very clear now that, that Egypt is playing a very important role in the world capitalist uh, system, especially for the finance, the capital. Um, because uh, the uh, interest rate that the country is is, is uh, offering for those loans is one of the highest in the uh, developing world. Uh, this, like for example, I think uh, Egypt is now the number one African country in in uh, in uh, borrowing. Um, so the relationship is rather complex, but it's very clear that the way that the country is now being run is uh, transferring the wealth away from the locals to uh, the international uh, creditors as well as the uh, elite uh, in the country uh, itself. You also point out that despite the ongoing impacts of COVID-19 on Egyptian households, 2020 has been marked by 
dramatic reductions in social spending and public subsidies. Is Egypt even cutting public health spending despite the pandemic? Are health services becoming worse and worse during the pandemic? And if so, is this due to any policies imposed upon them, debt imposed upon them by the IMF and World Bank? Uh, well, I can't say it's actually being imposed on them because this, because the healthcare system has been a problem for a very long time. Uh, so there has been minimal uh, investment in the healthcare system for years. Um, I think half of the uh, licensed um, uh, doctors left left um, uh, the country. So I wouldn't say this is imposed by the IMF per se. But generally, the uh, investment in the healthcare system uh, has been very, very, very bad. Um, so there is no healthcare system to actually speak of. So the chances of your survival, if you really get sick, um, are rather minimal. Uh, what makes so so? I would say the problem here is that the uh, IMF is generally encouraging reduction in social. Uh, uh, um, uh, um, uh, spending, which is generally, uh, let's say, increasing the vulnerability of the population uh, at large. Uh, so life becomes harder. Uh, you don't eat enough. You don't have enough for, for uh, uh, medication. So even though it's not directly affecting the healthcare system per se, at least that, that I'm aware of, but it's generally increasing the vulnerability of the poor um, due to uh, economic uh, pressures and uh, lower income. We are speaking with political analyst and columnist Meg Edmondur, who wrote the Sada Journal column at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace website entitled Sisi's War on the Poor. He also posted in his Chronicles of the Arab Revolt column for Open Democracy, the column, The Capitalist Roots of Egyptian authoritarianism demystifying a state. You can find Megad's working as uh, writing at carnegieendowment.org slash SADA and at opendemocracy.net. You can follow Megad on Twitter at Megad Mandur. So how much is the military then, how much is the Egyptian military in competition with the private sector? Or is the military the private sector? Is that the wrong way for me to be looking at it as two separate entities? No, you're uh, absolutely correct. So the military, uh, so there used to be <laughs> a private sector. Uh, but since 2013, let's say the military has been dramatically uh, expanding to it. So they are effectively crowding it out. So as a business owner, um, I'm competing against this behemoth, uh, a massive institution that also controls the state uh, that is not you that is not paying uh, taxation and has an army of uh, cheap labor, uh, basically um, the military uh, personnel. Um, so there are very grave concerns being raised regarding the uh, competition levels, uh, which is, of course, uh, stifling the growth of that sector. Uh, there has been a negative uh, growth of um, the private sector for the past few years. Um, and any ideas of uh, innovation, uh, entrepreneurship also becoming much more difficult. Um, so the military is in direct competition with uh, the private sector in some uh, areas. 
um, which of course is not good for the for the long term uh, sustainability of any uh, economic um, uh, growth. You write that the idea of the importance of the state in Egypt in its current form is hegemonic in Egyptian political circles, and an implicit view is adopted that it is an undifferentiated, blunt instrument, easily democratized through elections. This completely ignores the lesson of the coup of 2013, where the state apparatus undermined a democratically elected president and easily removed him from power with popular support. But it did come with popular support. So to what degree was that democratic or what is that seen as democratic by the Egyptian people simply because it had popular support, even though it didn't use the mechanisms of democracy? Well, it's, again, a very complicated question, uh, because at the time of the uh, removal of um, uh, uh, Morsi, there was really... um, it was clear that there was popular support for his removal. Um, however, at the same time, there were some problems in terms of his actual control of the state. Um, there is some uh, evidence, basically, that they were plotting to uh, overthrow him quite early on, and he never really had a chance to um, to control the state fully uh, and to uh, actually move along with the program that um, he wanted to uh, implement. Um, So it's, again, it's not black and white. So it's a very gray area. So even though the coup happened with uh, the military's um, uh, uh, support, he still had the support of a large section of um, the population. so the idea that there was, um, let's say, a, a democratic coup is kind of an oxymoron. Um, I don't think that that works. Um, if we're talking about the removal of a sitting president through popular uh, demands, then this should have been done in a very different way. And also what followed afterwards uh, was basically the um, establishment of an of a very dictatorial system, uh, massacres, um, repression, imprisonment of uh, thousands. Um, so, again, like looking at it within the context, it's very hard for me to say that it was a democratic move. Uh, it was basically the use of some popular sentiment to uh, establish a um, dictatorship. You were mentioning earlier the conspiracy theories about twenty the 2011 revolution being fake. How much do you think that yeah. that, how much do you think that conspiracy theory is exacerbated or promoted by the West taking credit for the revolution in 2011. We had people saying that it was all because of Facebook. We had people saying that it was all because of this tech wizard or that tech wizard or because of writing by somebody from Europe. How much do you think that taking credit for the revolution led to that conspiracy theory? Um, I don't think that that really filtered through to uh, the uh, Egyptian uh, at large, uh, but I think um, that there was this idea um, that, or, or, or let's say the uh, idea was being promoted that what happened in 2011 was a conspiracy by 
by foreign powers, including the uh, U.S., by the way, even though uh, Egypt is a very close uh, ally, to uh, kind of overthrow the state and to instill chaos uh, in uh, the country. Uh, so this, I would say, stems partially at least from uh, the uh, war in uh, Iraq. Um, there was this popular idea that there are uh, conspiracies being woven against us uh, and the West plays a rather uh, prominent role in that. You give a brief history of uh, Egypt as well. You write, in order to understand the nature of the current Egyptian state, one needs to understand its historical evolution. The founding of the modern Egyptian state can be traced back to Muhammad Ali, the Ottoman ruler of Egypt that came to power after a popular uprising in the early 19th century. The new Ottoman ruler had the personal goal of securing his position and that of his family after him. Hence, he embarked on a modernization project that revolved around building a modern army consisting of peasant conscripts. This process necessarily entailed the development of a state capable of harnessing the power of the peasant by either forcibly conscripting them into the army or as forced labor into one of the Pasha's projects. This also entailed repressing the succession of rebellions against the new state that erupted due to the horrendous level of violence inflicted by the state. So was the Egyptian modern state then a, a colonial project of Turkey? Does it remain a colonial project of the rich targeting the poor? Um, well, I would say from the historical perspective, it was a uh, project uh, against Turkey, so or like uh, against the Ottomans. So the ruler at the time wanted to secure his family's position in the country. And the way that he thought that he would be able to do that is to have a modern army. And to develop a modern army, you need a modern state. Um, so that was the way that the state basically developed in that uh, in 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 that uh, direction. Uh, in order to be able to compete with the uh, uh, with the uh, uh, Ottomans, um, this directly led to a change in uh, basically every aspect of 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 uh, life at um, the time. Uh, so the country started to produce cotton to sell, to make money, to finance this. Um, so it basically ch kind of changed the way of life completely um, in uh, the country. Um, if we're talking about this now that the state is a colonial project, um, yes and no. Um, so yes, in terms it was heavily... Uh, affected by uh, the colonial experience, but it but it has also developed its own indigenous roots. Um, so it's a mix between the uh, like between those. Um, so yes, in terms that it 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 is not something that grew uh, organically, and no, in the sense that it grew in interaction with the local uh, conditions. Um, so it's it's kind of a hybrid answer. 
And Mega, just a couple more questions for you. <laughs> you write, any attempts to reduce the power of the state over society will necessarily entail a drastic change in the process of capital accumulation. Thus, the question of democratizing the Egyptian state does not only refer to political liberalization, but also involves a structural economic change where the power of the state to appropriate public funds would be curtailed and an alternative center of economic power would emerge. Does democracy then necessarily mean the end of the current Egyptian economy? Is democracy in competition with economic interests of Egypt? Uh, well, I would say democracy is in direct uh, competition with the economic interests of the military. Um, so any real uh uh, uh, let's say um, democratization would not only involve just simple um, uh, election, it needs to involve a structural change on the uh, economic front. The way that not just the economy is run, but how the social relations within it work. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, we have one last question for you. We've been speaking with cl- columnist and political analyst Meg Edmondur, who wrote the Asada Journal column at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace website, entitled Sisi's War on the Poor. He also posted the Open Democracy column, The Capitalist Roots of Egyptian Authoritarianism. One last question for you, Meg Ed, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audiences going to hate your response. So, considering everything that we've discussed today, how different is life for Egyptians under Sisi than it was under Mubarak? How much has life changed for Egyptians? Uh, this is a question that I really don't want to answer. Uh, well, uh, unfortunately, it really uh, deteriorated. So, um on the human rights record, uh, on the human rights uh, front, on the uh, economic front, on the quality of life, um, let's say it's a general, it, it really has been a free fall. Um, so unfortunately, life has been pretty hard. Well, I just hope it gets to any degree better for the Egyptian people. And I cannot thank you enough for being on our show. Count on much. us bugging you in the near future to have you back on the show. Not a problem at all. We'd it was love to. really great writing. All right. Thank you very much, Maggette, and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you very much. Take care. You too. Thank you. Bye. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is Hell. Alex, what's this week's question from Hell? This week's question from Hell is, what is at the bottom of your downward spiral? <laughs> what is at the bottom of your downward spiral? <laughs> a very hard, flat floor. Alex will have some of your answers at the end of tomorrow's show. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets our new gray on black. This is hell truckers cap. You can check out the new gray on black truckers cap at this is hell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio. You can tweet it to us at this is hell radio. You can email it to either of us, Chuck at this is hell.com or Alex at this is hell.com. And we will be announcing this week's winner as we do every week at the end of Thursday's show. Don't forget, this Thursday's show begins at 1 p.m. We'll be telling you a little bit about that in a moment. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In rotten history, October 2nd, 1942, 78 years ago this Friday, the famous British luxury liner Queen Mary, which had been painted gray and converted into a military transport, was carrying some 10,000 U.S. troops across the Atlantic to the European theater of World War II. 
and quite a theater it was with shows running for six solid years. As the enormous ship reached an area of the ocean north of Ireland, it was met by the much smaller HMS Curaçao. Curaçao. A bright light, a British light cruiser assigned to escort military convoys in European waters. The Queen Mary was sailing behind the Curaçao, and to evade an attack by U- German U-tube boats, it was running in a zigzag pattern, moving fast enough to eventually catch up with the slower-moving light cruiser, which was steaming straight ahead. Due to a misunderstanding and faulty communication between the two vessels, the Queen Mary slammed in the Curaçao, plowing into its side and breaking into two big pieces, both of which sank within minutes. Since the now-damaged Queen Mary was under orders not to stop for any reason due to the German U-boat threat, its radio operators reported the accident, and the ship continued on its course, leaving wreckage and desperate sailors floating in its wake. Several hours passed before a British destroyer arrived to rescue the 101 survivors. By then, more than 300 other crew members of the Curaçao had gone down with the ship. In line with British wartime security protocols, all witnesses to the deadly accident were sworn to secrecy, and its nature was not revealed to the world until after the war. So, Queen Mary runs into a ship, tearing it apart, cannot stop to save survivors because they are following orders not to. Hundreds die, and their families don't know how or why until after the war. Because, had they found out during the war, what? Why would an accident at sea, accident that led to deaths, deaths that could not be avoided unless you risked thousands more lives, why would that be secret? Yes, governments like to keep secrets, even democratic ones, which you would think would not be the case, but governments at war, that's when they really love to keep secrets. In Rotten History, October 3rd, 1795, 225 years ago this Saturday, on the Caribbean island of Curaçao, not related to Curaçao, except for some original root of the word, the Dutch colonial authorities executed a man named Tula, an enslaved plantation worker of African descent who, since August, had led a major uprising on the island, inspired by the ideals of the French Revolution and also by the ongoing insurrection led by Toussaint Louverture in Haiti. Tula and his close associates had led growing numbers of enslaved people across Curaçao, from one farm to the next, confronting white plantation owners and seizing their weapons, which sounds like fun. They also managed to take a few farmers and officials prisoner, while other farmers abandoned their farms and fled to the towns. Cool, cool. That's Tula's rebel force grew to about a thousand, and the Dutch tried to negotiate a compromise, but Tula would accept nothing short of full freedom, and I'm becoming a very big fan of Tula. So the colonial governor, Johannes de Vere, ordered Dutch troops to take action, and I'm really beginning to dislike Johannes de Vere. The, British, or the Dutch troops captured and murdered an untold number of slaves in the ensuing bloodshed. The troops put down the revolt. In other words, they killed so many that uprising was no longer possible. Captured Tula as a warning to other would-be rebels. They tortured him to death, along with a few of his closest associates. Like I said, no fan of Johannes de Vere. Only after that did the Dutch officials throw the enslaved population a bone allowing them with very few limited rights. In Curaçao, Tula's revolt is remembered today as the beginning of a long and painful liberation struggle, which led to the abolition of slavery on the island 71 years later, in 1863, reminding us yet again that colonialism sucks, and if you think it is a thing of the past, it is not. Just ask any indigenous person anywhere. And that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, what's happening on the rest of this week's shows? 
Uh, I'm really excited for Tuesday's interview. We're talking with Fabian Scheidler uh, from his Zero Books release, The End of the Mega Machine, A Brief History of a Failing Civilization. Sweet. Uh, so that's on Tuesday at 10 o'clock. Then Wednesday, we're going to talk to Nick De- Nick Dearden, who has a big open democracy piece called We Must Defeat the U.S. Trade Deal. Food standards, the price of medicine, and climate action are on the slab in the biggest assault on Britain's sovereignty in modern history. Sweet. And, and then I'm- finally, Tuesday, or sorry, Thursday, we're going to be at 2 p.m. 2 p.m. on Thursday. 2 p.m. Uh, well, 1 p.m. Uh, mountain time. So Chuck was being a considerate to our mountain time <laughs> listeners there. Uh, we're going to have William I. Robinson, who was back on the show, to talk about his new book, The Global Police State, a critical look at the terrifying rise of the control of, quote, surplus populations. And Jeffy, of course. Then we'll, no. No Jeff. Jeffy this week. Yeah, That's we saw right. that email. That's right. No Jeffy this week. Uh, so uh, Thoughts and prayers. William I. Robinson uh, is going to be our guest on Thursday, and we've had a lot of listeners uh, ask us to have him back on, so we'll be doing that on Thursday. Uh, we are still looking for new volunteer board operators. We've had a lot of people send us emails and get in contact with us, and it's great. We're going to contact each and every one of you this week about how we're going to be moving forward with this. But we are still looking for new volunteer board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Alex has done nearly every day for years now, you can email me at chuck at com. chuck at com. The position comes with a modest stipend, so keep that in mind as well. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from from one to two, three, four, even five days every week. Or even if you can just do it once a month or a couple of times a month, we can work around your schedule. The show records every day, usually at 10 a.m. Chicago time. We would really like it if the board operators were here in the Chicago area so you wouldn't have to commute too far. And then you can uh, join us here at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon at, on the second floor and be part of our show. All you have to do is just email us, chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. We also have some people who are contacting us about some of the work that people can do remotely so you don't have to live here in the Chicago area. Again, if you're interested in doing that, Chuck at thisishell.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, captive radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Merce. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Maged. Thanks to Alex. Thanks to Ronaldo for the moment of truth. Or no, for rotten history. Jesus. Special thanks to Theron and Richard for all the stuff they do behind the scenes. We told you so. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.